1: Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by Nigel Inkster author of the new book, The Great Decoupling, China, America and the Race for Technological Supremacy. And in the episode, Nigel spoke to Linda Yu, the economist and broadcaster, about how the race for developing technologies like artificial intelligence will shape the geopolitics of the 21st century. It's a fascinating conversation. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Nigel's book in the podcast description.
0: But now let's
1: go to the episode.
0: Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm joined by Nigel Inkster, Senior Advisor at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's the former Director of Operations and Intelligence at MI6, the secret intelligence service of the British government. We're here to discuss his new book, The Great Decoupling, China, America, and the Struggle for Technological Supremacy. Welcome, Nigel. Let me just start off by asking you why you wrote this book, because you actually write in your own introduction. You had never planned to write this book or any book on China. So what changed your mind?
2: Well, thanks very much, Linda. I had written a book about China before for ILS uh, called China's Cyber Power which uh, came out in 2016. And I thought at that point that I'd said everything I had to say on the subject. But uh, when uh, Michael Dwyer, the editor of you know, Hearst, got in touch with me and asked if I'd be interested in, in doing something, that, that coincided with the beginning of a year when I'd made a New Year's resolution not to write and read any more bad and unnecessary books by Western commentators about China. But uh, having thought about it, I concluded that the situation had moved on sufficiently, both in terms of geopolitics and technology and the nexus between the two, that there probably was a need for something to set all of this in context. It coincided with a period when it was obvious that attitudes in the United States toward China had undergone a sea change. You know, I'd been at a conference at the beginning of the year of 2018, when, when it became absolutely clear to me that uh, the prevailing consensus in the USA was starting to be that uh, engagement with China had been a failure, that, um, you know, that the, the things needed to change, the United States was in danger of being overwhelmed, uh, because they'd failed to recognize how fast China's technological progress would be, and they needed to do something about it. And I thought at that point, there was probably a need to set all these issues in context and to kind of look back to, you know, through history, uh, to a point where, where, where China had been uh, the kind of Uncontested technology superpower of of the planet responsible for about half of all pre industrial revolution era inventions and, and and really kind of the head of the pack and uh, start from there, then look at the dramatic decline that China un, uh, underwent in the nineteenth century and see if that could explain why China is now behaving in, in, in the way that it is and why the race for technology supremacy matters so much.
0: That's a great lead-in, actually, to my next question, which is for you to outline the argument of your book. So what do you mean by the great decoupling?
2: Well, it's actually a phrase that I borrowed from a colleague of mine. One of the other things I do is work for a small economic consultancy called Enodo Economics, run by a lady called Diana Scheuleva. And uh, she has actually coined the term the great decoupling, and I shamelessly purloined it with her uh, approval. And what I mean by it is essentially a kind of parting, of, a fundamental parting of the ways between the United States as the incumbent hegemon and China as the rising power that, whether by accident or design, is in practice starting to challenge. US uh, claims to hegemony. And what we've seen, starting in 2018 with the US-China trade war and a so-called US-China tech war that uh, came out of that, has been an effort by the United States both to slow down China's technology progress and to seek to disengage from what has become a very high level of interdependence. And that interdependence goes back a long way. It really does go back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, when Deng Xiaoping initiated China's period of uh, economic reform uh, and this mission to kind of catch up with and, by implication in due course, overtake the, 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 the West, in, in Chinese, Gan Chao. And we've, we've seen, during the 1990s and early 2000s, an almost symbiotic relationship evolving between uh, the United States and China in both uh, economy and technology, you know that you know, what Mervyn King referred to the p- late period in the late uh, 1990s to 2008 the financial crisis as the nice decade by which he meant uh, non inflationary constantly expansionary I mean he wasn't you know extolling this as something you know, uh, to be carried on his point was that it was unsustainable but for a while we saw this kind of symbiotic relationship China made everything the USA bought it China put all its savings in US treasuries, it, it, you know, enabling US consumers to buy things on credit, which was cheap and available, until, of course, the party had to end, it ran out. Meanwhile, China, which had somewhat reluctantly, but you know, out of necessity, embarked on digitization, Uh, development of digital capabilities and the digital economy, initially heavily reliant upon US technology, but very rapidly moving to become the kind of world's workshop in the lower end technology, to the point where now the United States realizes that it's outsourced so much basic manufacturing, that it is actually vulnerable and this is something that the coronavirus uh, pandemic, of course, has uh, has highlighted. That you know there are certain facilities, that, you know, the capabilities, the manufacturing capabilities, the U- United States no longer has. And this became evident not just in the pandemic, but also in areas like fifth generation mobile technology, five G. You I know, mean, most of the concepts, most of the software, most of the difficult stuff around 5G is very much in American hands. But what American companies can't do is, you know, do basic manufacture of things like base repeating stations, or uh, all, all, all that is now in, in, in China's hands. So you've got this very, very complex nexus between the United States and China, driven by the desire of Wall Street and big tech to achieve high levels of efficiency at the expense of resilience and redundancy. And people are now starting to recognize the vulnerabilities associated with that and are having to try and address them. We're seeing now in the the United States, the US government is putting pressure on US technology companies to move away from China, to cease their collaboration with China. Silicon Valley is not keen to do this. they, they, They value very highly the business that they do with China. They make a lot of money out of it and they get a lot of benefit from it. And of course, we're also now seeing Wall Street barreling in to the China market as uh, China opens its capital account to foreign investment, uh, which may prove to be a relatively short and temporary thing. My sense is that having got the capital and got the risk management expertise that they need, you know, the, the, the message from China is likely to be, in the words of Douglas Adams, uh, goodbye and thanks for all the fish. But for the time being, uh, everybody you know, want, 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 wants to be in there. So we've got a situation in which the US government, for geopolitical and strategic reasons, is pulling in one direction, Silicon Valley and uh, Wall Street, to some extent, pulling in the other direction. And it's very amusing. Uh, it doesn't come in the book, but it's interesting to note that one of uh, Huawei, you know, the, the Chinese... Technology uh, national champion that was the driver for 5G technology. That Ericsson, the competitor of Huawei, the, the CEO of Ericsson, has spent most of 2020 lobbying the Swedish government not to exclude Huawei from Sweden's 5G network, because of course Ericsson is heavily dependent upon Chinese inputs, Chinese uh, components and doesn't want to get on the wrong side of the Chinese government, which I think, you know, kind of illustrates, you know, the the, the, the complexity and the sort of wickedness of the problem that, 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 that we're now facing.
0: That's a great encapsulation, actually, of the, as you say, it's a very entangled relationship um, that is decoupling for different reasons. And I want to explore the extent of it, obviously, which is what you write about in your book. But before we do that, I'd be very keen to know why you think technology and not, say, other sources of competition, why is technology at the heart of the US-China rivalry?
2: Well, I think it's a function of the way in which digitalization has changed quite fundamentally the way in which we do so much. It really has kind of ter- you know, changed the terms of trade. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, China was working hard and relatively successfully to, to modernise its economy using, shall we say, pre-information era capabilities. But even back in the 1980s, China's leaders were well aware of how digitalization was going to change everything. You know, they, they compulsively read the works of Alvin Toffler. And I remember when I was in Beijing in, in, in the mid-1980s, as think tanks and university departments were slowly reopening after the cultural revolution that's one the one thing they always wanted you to do for them was to give them lots of copies of alvin toffler's books third wave and future shock but you know toffler was on the money on this and the chinese leadership worked out very quickly that uh, digitalization was going to be uh, critical to modernization and and, and competitiveness and I think that China's embrace of digitalization, although it did cause them quite you know, serious political and security problems uh, to start with, has, has resulted in outcomes which exceeded our expectations, but almost certainly also exceeded the expectations of China's own leadership in terms of how far and how fast China could go and now i think it's quite clear to everybody that uh, control of domination of technologies like fifth generation mobile technology like artificial intelligence quantum computing quantum encryption etc you know whoever dominates those capabilities effectively holds the key to the future and you know th- th- this has been made abundantly clear in speech after speech after speech by Xi Jinping, basically urging everyone on, saying, you know, guys, we've got to, you know, we've got to, you know, the message is, you know, we've got a narrow window of opportunity to pull this off. We have missed the boat so many times in the past, we can't afford to do it again. Whereas, you know, the United States as the incumbent power, still very much dominant in all these technologies, I think is, is, uh, is approaching it from a de- very different perspective. In China, everything is state driven, you know, top down. In the United States, all these technologies are be de- being developed by a private sector, which is very jealous of its independence from government and far from amenable to, 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 to government direction and you look at the big US tech companies Apple, you know, Google, Microsoft etc. You know, the, these are organisations and entities which in effect have foreign policies more consequential in some respects than those of the US government and China is finding this too actually at the moment which is why they are trying to uh, clip Jack Ma's wings somewhat at, at, at the moment. But no, the, you know, I mean, and I think technology is, is clearly, or domination of technology is seen now as the key differentiator, which is going to make the difference between success and failure and relative uh, standing internationally in terms of, you know, economy and, um, and global power.
0: Mm. And indeed, I want to um, make sure we get to this, but um, it feeds into their intelligence capability. So it feeds into national security and all the other sort of, arenas of competition. But before we talk more about Chinese tech, um, it tell me about China's glass heart. You write about the example of the U.S. National Basketball Association. and so do say a bit about that, because I think that sets the stage also for some of China's stance.
2: Indeed, well, I think that I mean China has come a remarkable distance in a remarkably short time. I mean, no other country has you know has has done anything like this in the timescale in which China has achieved it. And I don't think any other country could. You know, China was very fortunate to be positioned in a unique conjunction of circumstances that probably aren't going to be replicated by anybody else. But the fact is they've done it. They you know they had their opportunity, they took it, and the results have unquestionably been impressive. But I think it's becoming increasingly clear to China that although people recognize their achievements, they don't seem ready to Recognize China as a kind of peer in the international system. And I think this is particularly true of the United States and to a lesser degree other developed Western countries. That, you know, as long as China is being run by a a Communist Party with its own very distinctive blend of sort of Leninist nationalism, you know, one can coin all sorts of uh, phrases to try and, and, and describe it, that they're never going to really afford China the respect that China feels that it deserves. And I think this has given rise to a kind of, uh, you know, I say in the book, almost adolescent prickliness. You know, why why won't people, you know, give us the respect that we think we're due? Why won't they, you know, sort of accept us on equal uh, footing with, with themselves? But I think it's also a reflection of the Chinese party state's own inherent insecurities. You know, they're, 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 you know th- this is an organisation that is not prepared to submit itself to any kind of electoral process. It regards itself as having, one, the right to rule China, if you like, by by right of conquest, almost. But in order to do this, they need to keep the people on their side. And they need to do this, firstly, by enhancing their standards of living, but also by demonstrating that the party and the party alone can defend China's interests and honor internationally. And this is really not about, I mean, this is not a process that's been driven by by, by China's diplomats. It's really uh, driven by China's party apparatchiks whose knowledge of international affairs is minimal to non-existent, and they don't really care because what this is really all about in the final analysis is keeping their own people on side. And this, I think, is why we see this prickliness, you know, in Chinese, as you put it, you know, the glass hat, Xin, and, you know, the, the, the emergence of the famed wolf warrior diplomats, can communicating with the world in in very undiplomatic terms. I think it is all about this uh, desire for you know well for, for in, internally for stability, externally for recognition. You know, and, and and as I said, the respect which China feels that uh, it, it, its achievements uh, entitle it to enjoy.
0: And that's what uh, the basketball association ended up running up against. The glass heart, and of course, as um, as you've outlined, you know where there is tension with the U, between U.S. and China. um, U.S. companies, um, including sports teams, view China's commercial market as something that you know is very attractive. So I think that gives another illustration of that. And you've also outlined how China's digitalization has progressed and, in some senses, surpassed what um, maybe the leaders had themselves expected. So do say a bit uh, more about when China went digital and tell tell the story you write about in the book about the pirated copies of Windows XP and how that led Microsoft to give free upgrades.
2: Yes. Indeed. Well, I mean China, you know, China joined the internet in 1996, which relatively speaking was late on. And to start with, you know, there, 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 were, there was relatively limited uptake. You know, only a couple of million people in, in amongst this huge population, and at a time when you know nobody had computers, in smartphones were still a distant dream, and even ordinary telephone lines were in relatively uh, short supply. But things moved very quickly, and particularly once uh, smartphones arrived. Most people in China didn't have their own laptops, their own computers. They they, they, they used internet cafes. But once uh, uh, cheap smartphones arrived, that uh, changed very quickly. And what we had in China was an interesting situation in which... The government was driving the development of the Internet through a series of top-down initiatives, but at the same time creating an enabling environment in which Chinese entrepreneurs and engineers, many of whom had kind of served some kind of apprenticeship in Silicon Valley, were able to come back to China with the skills that they had acquired and adapt them in ways that were uniquely suited to China's particular circumstances. So, for example, we've seen nobody in China has ever really had credit cards, nor now is there any need, because uh, people like Jack Ma and Alibaba you know, and uh, Tencent developed mobile banking systems that essentially enabled people to leapfrog the credit card and, and, and move to a world you know, of, of electronic payments now so pervasive that, as i mentioned even uh, in in the book, even beggars in the street have notices round their necks with q r codes so you can give them a digital donation and you know Chinese entrepreneurs have not been particularly innovative in terms of the, the you know, the foundational science of this thing, but what they 've been really good at is developing applications that help smooth out all the frictions of of daily life in urban China. And the extent to which they've been good at this is demonstrated by the way in which, for example, eBay was comprehensively run out of town by Chinese competitors. You know, eBay thought that they, they could just deal with China as another country in a worldwide network operated out of America and, and that, that simply, you know, wasn't good enough to cope with the, the, the conditions within China. So we've seen, you know, the, 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 this very interesting uh, process. And every time digitalization looked like flagging, looking losing momentum, we saw another top-level push to, to move it forward, what are the problems, what are the things we've got to do, do we need more regulation, do we need you know, better control of data, what is it that we need to do, and uh, they, they kind of got on and done it, and we saw this particularly when Xi Jinping took office in 2012, one of the first things he did was to set up a leading small group, since become a commission, on information security and digitalisation. And this is one of you know the, the sort of seven commissions that Xi Jinping personally chairs, where he's really sort of driving the system to deliver you know, better and faster results. And yes, initially, of course, China was very heavily dependent upon uh, US technology. And pirated Windows software was kind of the default setting pervasive in, in government departments, among the PLA, everybody else. And Microsoft said that they were no longer going to support a particular version of, of, of Microsoft. You know, th- th- this was potentially devastating for China. And, and, and in the event, um, Microsoft had to give ground and say, OK, we'll give free upgrades to everybody who was uh, using this. You know, we know it's pirated software. And, um, you know, that, that, that's what they had to do. And the interesting thing is, of course, that Microsoft is still very heavily involved in providing services uh, to, to the Chinese market. And we see it also with Google. I mean, um, Huawei has you know, been, been cut off from access to uh, Google and Android. And so they've developed their own system. But that system looks suspiciously like Android. <laughs> Indeed, I don't think you could probably tell you know, much uh, you know, uh, difference in terms of, of functionality. So, so it's been a very interesting progress uh, process. But you know, as the vulnerabilities of dependence on U.S. technology have become more evident, and of course, this was. Dramatically illustrated by the Snowden revelations in, 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 in 2012. You know, the, so the push has been, as far as possible, to move in the direction of indigenous uh, manufacture. Uh, we've, we've seen the emergence of uh, Made in China 2025, though latterly, uh, I think the references to Made in China 2025 have uh, disappeared down, down the memory hole because they're seen as neuralgic in terms of relations with, with the USA. But the push is on for indigenous manufacture, and nowhere is this more evident in the, than in the area of high-end Uh, uh, microprocessors, microchips, which the USA is now denying China access to, and which are critical for many of the things that uh, China wants to see achieved. So we're seeing huge amounts of money uh, being thrown at this particular problem. I don't know how successful it's going to be. But also, we're seeing huge amounts of money being thrown at artificial intelligence, um, quantum I computing, etc., etc. Et because um,
0: we mentioned, um, you mentioned just now as well that uh, the People's Liberation Army. So there are military uses of AI, and that's obviously another sphere of competition. And you actually write in the book that espionage is a grey area in international law. So just outline for us what China does in this area globally.
2: Well, yes, it's very interesting because um, you know, for for, for a, uh, a long time after liberation, China's intelligence services didn't really amount to much. You know, they you know, they, they they had a reputation that really wasn't uh, supported by you know any particular performance. That began to change in the 1980s as China opened up and the world became more accessible. And in particular, the intelligence services were able to leverage the benefits that came from a Chinese diaspora community in the United States that, 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 that was disproportionately represented in a lot of uh, high-end um, government technology programs. So, you know, that, 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 that was relatively uh, successful. But digitalization has really quite fundamentally changed kind of the terms of the debate, And we began to see in the mid-2000s, the Chinese intelligence services waking up to the realisation that in the West, there were huge volumes of data stored on servers that were either poorly protected or not protected at all, and and were more or less there for the taking. And and at that point, we we began to see terabytes of, of data being extracted from US corporations uh, and other Western uh, corporations around the world. Massive volumes of data. Initially, a lot of the companies who were being attacked either were not aware that this was happening or were aware that it was happening but didn't want anybody to do anything about it because they feared that if they did complain... Uh, they would be subject to retaliation by the Chinese state. And they were right, because there were plenty of examples of that happening. When companies like Cisco and Intel, you know, raised complaints, all of a sudden, you know, these companies found themselves being investigated for all sorts of uh, alleged offences in China. So it was actually very difficult for the US or indeed any other Western government to start to Mount an effective response, because, uh, you know, there weren't enough plaintiffs around to, you know, to, to kind of do it. But the volume of this data extraction reached such levels, that I think people had to, to address it, it had become, particularly with the United States, a strategic issue in its own right. I mean, espionage, you know, is, 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 is pervasive, it's happening all the time, even as we speak. And in the main, it's not doing that much harm. And I always say to my my Chinese colleagues, when when I go there, there are two types of espionage. There's good espionage and there's bad espionage. And you guys are doing too much of the bad variety and not enough of the good. You know, what I mean by that is you know, good espionage is really you know, getting under the skin of, 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 of the other guy, understanding where he's coming from, why he does what he does, because that way you can actually mitigate risks and avoid accidents. But what you're doing is actually creating problems. And this was certainly true for the, for, for, for the United States. And the United States under Obama did try to do something about it. In 2015, you know, they forced China to the negotiating table and got them to agree not to conduct espionage for, for economic benefit. But actually, China didn't really... I mean, you know, the U.S. said, "Look, you know, there's a difference between you know, what, what, what in my business we used to call ordinary, decent espionage, you know, sort of collecting national security secrets versus collecting information for economic gain." Well, for China, this was a distinction that they did not recognise, because for China, national security is seen as far more comprehensive in scope. Uh, than typically it is in the West. And you know now under Xi Jinping in China, national security encompasses things like culture, literature, you know, as well as many of the all, all the traditional areas. So China was never really persuaded of this. And in private, they would say, well, you know what, this is basically condign punishment for the 100 years of uh, national humiliation that you guys uh, subjected us to. So, you know, get over it. <laughs> in, in essence, I mean, that, that, that was always in private, never Made, made, made public, of course. But we did get a, a, a sort of brief kind of tactical pause, but it didn't last very long. And we're now seeing that data extraction is, is, is a huge undertaking uh, for China now. And we've seen massive attacks, not just against private sector companies, but against government. One I rent, uh, re- reference in the book is the Theft of the U.S. government's uh, operation of personal management uh, database, which contains highly sensitive personal information about you know, nearly 25 million U.S. government uh, employees. That uh, information is now being analyzed and triaged in a data center somewhere in Quebec. I can't remember where. I did know where it was, and it's being mixed together with all sorts of other information, travel data. Credit data stolen from Experian, etc., uh, etc., et in ways that enable the Chinese state to build very granular pictures uh, of individual Americans, which they can potentially use for the purposes of espionage, political pressure, detecting U.S. Uh, intelligence officers, etc., etc. And it's, it's not just that, of course, but uh, um, in today's world, if you can aggregate enough data and subject it to analysis through artificial intelligence programs, you may well be able to find out things about your adversary in terms of vulnerabilities that they themselves aren't aware of.
0: So you're saying this is happening all around us, even as we speak. Oh, very much so, yes. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, indeed. And and as with so much else again about China, the scale on which it's being done is
1: Promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV.
0: You write in the book about um, examples of how this has been um, has been done, especially against the United States. But um, is this also the case for the UK or other countries?
2: Any Western country that that, that has information of potential use to China is is vulnerable to this. Uh, Yeah, I mean, if you like to, to use old style Cold War terminology for china the usa is the main enemy that is where you know the the key focus of intelligence effort is directed but there's plenty else to go around you know the ministry of state security is a big organization probably about 100000 employees And, um, you know, know, China still also has its own separate military uh, intelligence capabilities. But the point I also make in in the book is that we kind of need to think about China differently from ordinary states. You know, in, in, in Western democracies, intelligence services do operate. But they, you know, they, they, you know, they operate in in some ways at the margins of the state. You know, they're, they're not. I mean, you know, in, in, in a country like the United uh, Kingdom, for example, you know, the intelligence service has no ability to compel ordinary British citizens to work for it. You know, they can ask, uh, but if the answer is no, then they have to accept that and move on. In China, what we've got is a situation where China has become a kind of techno security state, but also an intelligence state, a bit like the Venetian Republic was around the 16th and 17th century, when you know, uh, intelligence, a you know, collection of covert information and the practice of covert activity was, was you know, bound into the, you know, was, was sort of baked into the fabric of the state. It was integral to the state's functioning and any Venetian citizen, could uh, uh, potentially and might well find themselves being involved in some aspect of covert activity designed to assist the Venetian Republic. And so it is now, I think, with China. It's it's an intelligent state. It's a different phenomenon.
0: And I think that feeds into your overall argument as we sort of wrap up this discussion about the great decoupling, because it's both the competition side, but it's also that the Chinese and the American systems and indeed the Chinese system versus what you just described in the West is so very different. So you argue that the great decoupling you write in the book has already begun and that Democrats with the new Biden administration won't change that very much. So just outline the ways in which Uh, China, the United States have already decoupled what you expect is coming down the line. And what does it mean for the rest Mm -hmm. of us?
2: Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, uh, as I say in the book, decoupling is not going to be a, a, a smooth process, you know, with clearly defined binary outcomes. It's something that's going to happen in a very, you know, sort of piecemeal and rather jagged way. And you know, it's it's interesting in, in, in China now. The term decoupling, to go, you know, is almost a dirty word. You know, I mean, it, it, it almost has connotations of like child abuse. Whereas, you know, in in the United States, it, you know, um, in political circles, it's seen as something as uh, necessary and uh, you know desirable and necessary. You know, China does not want to decouple. I mean, it, it, it's a very interesting situation. You know, the, the China, China wants engagement with the world, but it wants that engagement to be much more on its own terms and in accordance with its own rules and, 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 and preferences. For the United States, it seems increasingly, at least in political circles, that the U.S. You know, sees uh, salvation in disengaging from China in ring-fencing um, some key areas of economic and technology activity you know, to, to kind of insulate them from the potential for Chinese um, interference. Now, whether that actually is either possible or desirable, is a moot point. And I, I don't try to reach a judgment on that uh, in the book, because I think it's too, you know, there are far too many moving parts, far too many unpredictabilities. And it's just, you know, too goddamn complicated in a word. But I think that what we will see is a kind of selective disengagement in certain areas, some of which will probably have to be tacitly acknowledged as necessary. And, uh, um, telecommunications, I think, is an obvious case where you know, both sides may have to accept that that, that that something like this is going to happen and we're going to have to learn to live with it. That the, the days of total US dependence on China as the kind of workshop of the world have to end that the United States and other Western economies are going to have to relearn the art of uh, making some things for themselves, or at least having alternative sources of supply. So we don't have this kind of single point of failure problem that we had last year with, for example, masks and Protective medical equipment. So you know the, 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 these things are going to change. I think we're going to see a situation in which both uh, China and, and and Western countries are much warier about each other, less engaged, to, you know, less inclined to just you know engage at all costs. Uh, to think through much more carefully the strategic uh, and geopolitical implications of such activity we've seen it with the european union have recategorized uh, china as being you know lots of different things including being a strategic competitor and 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 so i think that you know that that will happen quite how far it goes is ultimately, I think, going to be dri- driven by politics, geopolitics, but also domestic politics. We've seen in the last year that the Trump administration has really piled on the pressure on China in in many ways, uh, re- re- really trying to constrain China and also, so to speak, you know, poke them in the eye over matters like, uh, like Taiwan but also you know, in, in ways that seek to box in the incoming administration and uh, limit its room for manoeuvre in, in, in relation to China. Now, you know, it's far too early to tell how that is going to, to, to play out. But we all know that when it comes to the United States, when the, when the tanker has turned through 180 degrees, it has turned and you tend to get a very quick national consensus developing, which is then very hard to shift in the absence of dramatic events. So my sense is that for the foreseeable future, we're going to see a United States that is looking to disengage at least partially from China in various ways. And a China that will try to prevent this, but will ultimately have have to accept it. And how far it goes, you know, and and, and what the implications are, my sense is that, you know, when it comes to technology and human progress, the likely outcome is that everybody loses. You know, my my worst fears, I don't know whether they'll be realised, is that, uh, you know, China may again turn in on itself you know that uh, when, when all is said and done in, in, in China, security always trumps everything else. When, when um, life gets difficult. But I also worry about whether the United States will be able to continue its recent spurt of um, inventiveness in, in, in some of these technologies. You know, not least when we see you know, the, 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 the prevalence of anti-science mindsets um, in, 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 in the US uh, political class. I mean, I think what happened to China in the 19th century should be an object lesson for all of us you know, here was a country that was kind of on top of the world and saw itself as on top of the world, and all of a sudden went from hero to zero, literally overnight. We shouldn't think it can't happen to us.
0: Wow, Nigel. Well, finally, I'd like to conclude on a hopeful note. (laughs) Tell me why you write in the book, you don't think we're headed into a new Cold War.
2: Well, I mean, I think a Cold War is a very poor analogy for what is happening now, because, I mean, I lived through the Cold War. It was a, you know, a defining element in my um, earlier professional career. And, you know, back then, the Soviet Union, I mean, we, we used to talk about the Soviet Union as, you know, very in, politically incorrect terms, up a volta with the bomb. You know, a, a third world economy that just happened to have, you know, nuclear missile, sufficient nuclear missiles to destroy the planet. It was cut off from the rest of the world. It was, you know, largely a sealed system. It was, you know, the Soviet Union was the world's biggest open prison. And its economic impact on the world, economic engagement with the world, was minimal to non-existent. China could not be more different in that regard Firstly, you know, its economic uh, impact and its eco- level of economic engagement with the world is orders of magnitude different. But also from an ideological perspective, it's not quite the same. You know, the Soviet Union, at least on paper, was uh, dedicated to making the world you know, communist, in effect. Whereas I think the, the kind of uh, sort of Leninist nationalism that we're seeing, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party now espousing... Doesn't really aspire to do that. You know, there, there's certainly the language of the party state is Marxist-Leninist language, and the sort of methodology of thinking, you know, dialectic materialism, all that sort of thing, you know, is is, is very recognizable. But it's also uh, born up with a kind of nationalism that's almost more reminiscent of National Socialism in the 1930s in Europe. And it's very interesting that some of the ideologues that seem to be shaping uh, current thinking see Carl Schmitt as one of their you know, sort of key Western frames uh, of reference, uh, because Carl Schmitt was for three years, I think, a member of the German National Socialist Party. So it's a very different thing. It's much more ethnically based... And, and, and you, know, it, it's, you know, China needs to be dealt with in a very different way from the way that the Soviet Union needs to be dealt with. Uh, we can't cut it out. We can't exclude it. Uh, you know, China has got to be dealt with. China has got to be engaged with. Um, I don't think there is any, you know, realistic uh, alternative to that. And the kind of rather crude tactics that we used uh, in the Cold War... Are not going to cut it. I think we need, you know, in the West, to, you know, to have a much more nuanced and sophisticated uh, strategy for 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 dealing de- dealing with China. In a recent conference um, involving uh, U.S. military, I made the point that if uh, the USA wants to engage with like-minded countries to consider how to deal with the China challenge, they're going to have to accept a degree of variable geometry you know, the idea that all other, you know, Western democracies are going to view China in exactly the same way that the United States uh, might do is completely unrealistic. And, you know, therefore, we're going to have to look at, at at this in a very different way. And I think actually, what we need to do as well, is kind of use China as a mirror to hold up to ourselves, and ask ourselves, you know, what China is doing, right, that, uh, you know, from which we might, um, you know, take uh, take the odd lesson. I fantasize about an era in which Western politicians uh, understand China as well as they understand America, and dare I venture to suggest even have some facility in the Chinese language, but I don't think that's about to happen uh, anytime soon, uh, regrettably. But I think that, um, you know, as I said, it, it's not going to be a Cold War like the Cold War was. This is not a realistic option. You know, power has shifted. Power has shifted from east to west, but power has also dispersed. We're we're, we're, we're seeing actually quite a lot of uh, medium-sized countries showing a capacity to exercise power much greater than would traditionally have been the case. So we're going to have to look at a very different global distribution of power, of which China is a key component, but not the only one, and think about how how we deal with that. We don't have that. We don't have that template yet. We don't have that blueprint, um, but hopefully in the next few years we can start to develop one. Mm.
0: Thanks very much, uh, Nigel Inkster, and do pick up his book, *The Great Decoupling: China, America, and the Struggle for Technological Supremacy*, to gain a better understanding of what is likely to be the defining event of the early twenty-first century. So. Thanks very much to Nigel, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. For more podcasts, please go to intelligencesquared.com. I'm Linda Yu.